Hi, listeners. We are back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. Today, we're going to take a little break from coronavirus coverage, and instead, we're going to be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to report and write the Post and Courier's award-winning investigation into a deadly riot at a South Carolina prison. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We are joined virtually today by two of the reporters behind that story, Jennifer Barry Haas and Stephen Hobbs. They're coming off two big wins for this piece, a first place honor in the Scripps Howard Awards for Distinguished Service to the First Amendment, and another first place in the IRE Awards, which recognizes outstanding investigative work. So congrats to both of you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So if you haven't read the story yet um, and it was originally published in December, we do kind of recommend that you check it out before listening. And we will include a link to the article in the episode description. But if you haven't had a chance to read the full piece yet, we think you'll learn a lot from this episode about how the Post and Courier produces these kinds of investigative projects. I guess to start us off, let's let's kind of set the scene. When did this happen? Where is this prison at? What's it like for inmates there? Sure. So. Basically, this happened two years ago uh, in mid-April 2018. Um, It happened at Lee Correctional Institution, which is a large maximum security prison in Bishopville, uh, a small town in Lee County that sits uh, in South Carolina's vast PD region and is perhaps more widely known for the mysterious lizard man uh, than anything else, really. (laughs) The famous lizard man. (laughs) Yes, So the prison itself is an older one. It's a series of massive drab concrete buildings that house some of the state's most dangerous offenders. Um, And at the time of the riot, officials had just moved in about 250 inmates from another prison, McCormick, where the staff shortage had become extremely dire and the agency's number two man feared losing control of it. So at the time, you had all of these Uh, gang members from various prisons and parts of the state who had vendettas against one another, who had vendettas against inmates already at Lee. And they were all suddenly housed together on its West Yard, which is where the most dangerous offenders are housed at that prison. You had a number of other things um, that I'm sure we'll talk about that kind of created a real volatile stew in those days. Could one of you explain... The different gangs that are at this prison and really prisons throughout South Carolina and the piece, you kind of explain how they interact with one another. And right, there are three main groups, right? Yeah, I think that the three main groups that really were relevant in this piece uh, were the Bloods, the Gangster Disciples, and the Crips. And there are other gangs and groups throughout South Carolina's prisons, but those were the ones that were really big here in this incident. And And I think what how they interact is is sometimes there will be rivalries. Say uh, people might be more familiar with the Bloods and the Crips having a rivalry, say. But there are also maybe times when they work together, say if there are opportunities to have uh, contraband cell phones or, or drugs or other items that maybe involve uh, money-making opportunities for inmates where they may actually work together or not be uh, totally against each other. But there are moments, like in this incident, where maybe something that happens that exacerbates some of those rivalries that already exist. And so this was a moment where something happened, some dispute happened, and and it sounded like 
just word spread amongst these groups, and it caused groups to join together and, and go against each other uh, later in the night. And I know, Jennifer, you had just mentioned that at Lee, there there were a lot of prisoners who were just transferred there, right? And we're talking people who are in rival gangs, possibly people who were in more so leadership roles in those gangs, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that situation, bringing all of those people in so soon before this riot happened? Sure. And you have to keep in mind that the throughout the prison system in South Carolina, as people are moved around, incidents occur in a prison that then um, requires some sort of retribution. So you have people moving around amongst these prisons, and if they have um, some sort of past history with somebody, they're probably going to run across that person again at some point in time, um, or some of their um, fellow gang members. So you have this um, constantly moving situation. And uh, in the fall, before the riot, the the prison system moved um, a little over 250 inmates into Lee, um, many of them all housed in one dorm. And so you had people who had been involved in some major episodes from McCormick uh, Correctional and also from Broad River Correctional, who all of a sudden are housed right next to each other and have these vendettas. And so these three gangs, um, the, the sort of equilibrium that existed before that was upset. And you had leaders from the different gangs who were accustomed to running that yard in particular. Um, there was a blood leader housed at Lee who, um, who, according to some inmates, was involved in keeping some of the peace, uh, keeping some of the, the turf issues more peaceful, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. But all of a sudden that that equilibrium was thrown off because you had this massive number of new guys uh, who had been involved in these previous incidents uh, and they're all housed in close quarters. And at the same time, um, so Lee is divided into two sides, the East Yard and the West Yard. The West Yard had three dorms that were involved with this riot. And in one of those dorms, F5, um, which is a different layout from the others, the inmates had learned how to overpower the locking system. So they could come and go as they pleased from their cells and from the building. The building was surrounded by a, a razor wire fence. But inmates in that dorm could move around at will. And then because of the staff shortage, um, there were inmates who could basically kind of come and go from buildings as they wanted. Inmates told us stories about just going and staying in whatever cell they chose. Um, there was just a lot of, uh, of freedom that allowed those gang rivalries to fester. They could communicate with each other. Uh, many of them had cell phones. It was, it was a pretty surprising lack of, of control at the time. I think that's one of the most surprising things in the story, at least to me, was that there would be one officer, right, in an entire um building. Uh, that was definitely something that surprised me. I I was aware of staff sort of shortages across the prison system, but I, I didn't realize it was quite like that, that you would just have one officer and then to, to how many inmates, right? That the ratio there is, um, it just sounds overwhelming. Let, let me ask you, it seems ridiculous, right? Like, it, did anybody 
believe that this was sufficient staffing or like, did, did anybody try to convince themselves that like it would be fine? Or did everybody know that this was kind of a ticking time bomb? No, I, nobody thought that was a good thing. And, and the Department of Corrections doesn't think that's a good thing. They have tried to recruit. Uh, the problem is that they're, they've not been successful. The legislature has increased pay some for staff, but the bottom line is that for the enormity and dangers of the job, it's really difficult to hire people uh, for a salary that starts you know, in the low 30s in a state, which at the time anyway, uh, had a really robust economy. So they really, really struggled to recruit and retain staff. Uh, nobody in the Department of Corrections thought the staff was adequate, but what could you do? You know, they had to make do with what they had. And in, in many cases, it was one female officer in a dorm of 250 maximum security inmates. Uh, I don't think anybody would suggest that that's an okay environment. How did how did y'all decide to start reporting on this? What what brought it to your attention? It was seeing that a year after this incident happened and kind of seeing the stories about the anniversary one year later and just thinking that we hadn't really been taken inside the actual prison's walls to see kind of what happened. We'd heard some of the periphery. We'd heard that maybe cell phones were involved, that maybe there was some gang issues that went on. But we didn't really know the people who were involved. Uh, we knew the names of the people who died, but we didn't know where they died, how they died, really what were some of the aspects of it, let alone some of the other people who actually witnessed the violence. And so it really was, I think, an important thing because this was a very large event. This was the deadliest prison incident in 25 years. So this was a major moment for us to look at our prison system through the eyes of this one event. And so when we started doing that and started reviewing clips and uh, other articles and started kind of looking around for information, I think we realized that there was a void there that we could try to fill. Uh, It wasn't easy, but that's when we started to kind of gather as much information as we could and just slowly chip away at trying to tell the story about what happened. And how, how long did it take for y'all to report the story? It was about uh, eight months. We started around that anniversary date, so about April 15th of 2019. And Jen and I were working up until the last day, right before it actually published in print uh, on December 8th of 2019. So it was it was a full-scale effort. Now, in between there, there were other projects and and other things that came up, uh, whether it was stories or uh, Jen had a book that she had come out. So there were a lot of times that we had time where we were doing other things. But for a lot of that period, we were wo- working specifically on this story. Should You should buy Jen's book, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. So when you started this reporting process, what were some of the major holes that you knew you had to fill in, right? It was pretty limited information. You knew the names, right, of the people who had died. It was seven people. I don't know if we had mentioned that yet. And um, some of those cursory details, but it, it sounds like there were so many holes you had to fill in. So how did you how did you start? Well, we started trying to gather information just you know, through traditional means, you know, asking around, trying to get names of people who were there, 
filing some freedom of information requests, um, that sort of thing. But it quickly became clear that we were not going to be able to get anything remotely like adequate information through those channels because um, SCDC, the South Carolina Department of Corrections, wouldn't release much at all about what actually happened there. They wouldn't tell us uh, who the inmates were, who were there, the staff who was there. So you don't even know who to contact. It was basically just um, a big black hole, really, of information. So Stephen and I began um, writing letters to inmates. Um, SCDC's policy for journalists is that we cannot go interview inmates in person. So we figured the best way to try to find them um, was just through writing letters. Uh, we got a hold of some documents that named staff and inmates, and we just started with those. We began writing letters to them, um, basically saying, hey, you know, were you there? Is there anything you could tell us about it? And if you know anybody else who is there, would you pass our contact information along? And uh, ultimately, we wound up writing to more than 400 inmates who were at Lee at the time or had some sort of direct connection um, to what happened. Uh, we reached out to a number of staff members. Um, I think in the end, we were able to get the names of all of the staff who were there. It was just a really um, tedious process, which is part of why this took so long. Uh, if you can imagine, writing a letter to an inmate involves writing the letter, putting it in the mail, waiting for it to go through the prison's mailroom, getting to the inmate. Um, many of the inmates were in restrictive housing units because they were involved with this in some way, shape, or form. And in the RHUs here, they get two envelopes a month. So we would have to wait until they had the materials to write back. Then it goes back through the mailroom. Then it comes back through the mail, gets to us. Um, and so, you know, the traditional ways that journalists operate where you interview people and you ask questions and then you verify what people have told you took a long, long time. And you're dealing with people who... Um, who in some cases, um, you know, had reasons to tell us stuff they wanted us to believe. And we wanted to make sure the information we had was accurate. So we were doing a lot of double checking, triple checking, quadruple checking information. Um, so it was just a really tedious, tedious process. Uh, Stephen and I started sending uh, the turtle emoji to each other as a reminder that the tortoise won the race and not the hare because it would become... Um, just really a grind at times. So that's why it took so long. But uh, ultimately, we were able to to get enough information that we felt really comfortable with the information that we used. And you can tell from reading the story, of course, that obviously the, that interaction and that information you got from those inmates was critical, right, to being able to tell the the story. Uh, when did you start hearing back from from inmates and what were those interactions like? Were they hesitant to communicate with you? Uh, how did you kind of build a, tr a trust with them to actually get that information about what happened? I think that was part of the long process as well, was just uh, because of some of the initial letters, I think people were kind of hesitant, which I would be too if I was in that situation and had seen something. And so it was, it was, a little bit of just going back and forth. And there were definitely some moments where I think they were kind of feeling out what we wanted to do and what we were interested in. I think one thing that we just tried to be was very honest with them. We were not trying to solve the case or prosecute the case that was for law enforcement to do. We were just trying to tell the story about what happened and describe what it was like 
for the people who were there and what they saw through their eyes. And I think that helped us because these people had already experienced it. And in some ways were getting flashbacks in nightmares, um, seeing visions of people when they closed their eyes of some of the awful things that they saw. So they're very much living this and maybe hadn't really been able to talk to anyone about it or anyone outside of the prison's walls, really. And so I think it gave an opportunity for us um, to be honest with them about that, but for them maybe to gain trust in us. And I think we focused, too, on very some specific details with them. And so we were able to, we weren't asking them to tell us everything that happened, but if they were in a certain unit and a certain part of the unit, we kind of were like, okay, what did you see in that certain area? Did you see anything else? And by that, we were able to kind of piece together like a puzzle, right? And just little bits of information that go together. And just one last thing, because I know Jen probably has some good stuff to add on this too, is just we, I think, learned uh, lingo or nicknames was really big. There were a lot of nicknames and, and people very infrequently knew each other's names. And so we had to learn through this process everyone's nicknames or the nicknames of the key people so that then though when we could communicate with someone we could use that nickname and that immediately gave us some credibility because they knew that we knew certain information that the person what we were taught to could cut through kind of just the basics of um, trying to figure each other out so that helped us out a lot i do uh, i want to give listeners a little a little window into uh what life is like in the post and courier newsroom at least before quarantine, um, uh, it, it was uh, it was pretty amusing. I mean, uh, to uh, to sit there it, like we have a pretty open space, and so like when you know Stephen or, or anybody is is having some of these phone calls, you know, you kind of overhear at least their their side of the conversation. So it was pretty uh, odd at times to to hear Stephen on these phone calls. Like, and then so then Papa Smurf did what? You know, uh, <laughs> not to involve Papa Smurf in any of those. <laughs> yeah, it, it that was definitely interesting. I in the newsroom when we are physically in the newsroom, I uh, sit pretty close to to both of you guys. So I I remember overhearing uh, one one side of your telephone calls and just wondering what you were being told. But obviously, they were interesting conversations. Could you also kind of explain there? So you're of course having these these conversations over the phone. How did those interactions work after that first letter? So you send a first letter, and then how do you get more interaction? Well, you know, we'd write back, obviously, and try to press them in the areas where we thought they had direct knowledge. And also, some of them who were able to call, it was so much more helpful because um, some of them had illicit cell phones, and some of them would call over the prison phone system. And then you could have really direct conversation with somebody and hear, you know, the tone of their voice. You could really ask a lot of deeper questions. It made it so much more personal. You know, we really wanted to show these inmates as human beings. Uh, We wanted to show what they'd been through. And we wanted to discuss the trauma of that. Uh, And one point Stephen made earlier that I think is really important is that we, we emphasized them that we didn't want to, we weren't prosecutors. It's not our job to say who did what. We weren't trying to um, get them to snitch on somebody, for instance. That was, of course, a big concern of many of theirs. Uh, We wanted just to know what happened. Uh, We wanted to know what they saw, what they experienced, and not, uh, you you know, 
pin the blame or or the, be the ones to suggesting who should be charged with what. And that I think helped us uh, gain their trust that we weren't trying to get them um, involved in a legal case, for instance, or get them involved in the criminal prosecution. I, we just wanted to know what they went through as human beings. And I felt that that was something many of them really responded to. Uh, they hadn't felt heard uh, at all in the past, um, even before the riot, but particularly since the riot. I, I just, I was just kind of overwhelmed with the enormity of uh, just loss of human potential in the prisons in general, but in particular in this case, and to think that a lot of these men, um, especially the ones obviously who were not involved, who were just witnesses to this, um, and to those who are sort of more purely victims, you know, they, imagine sitting in a cell by yourself all day, never leaving it hardly, um, with this just replaying in your mind over and over and over again. Um, and it's not just the inmates, you know, it's the staff who is there as well, you know, who are all moving forward in their lives, trying to deal with what they saw uh, and what they were, in many cases, unable to do. Uh, a lot of the staff... Um, because they were just so outnumbered, um, fled. And so, uh, you know, they're left to deal with, um, you know, all of the emotions involved in having to make that decision. It was just really important, I think, for a lot of the people we talked to, to be heard. And they hadn't felt like they had been. I mean, one of the things that really resonated with me was the the video um, that you ended up putting together with some of those letters that were sent, right? And and those letters really, really went beyond sharing the who, what, when of what had happened, right? I mean, these people were really sharing how they felt and how they didn't feel heard. Um, how did that idea come together to to kind of share those letters in that format and and share those their words in that way? I think it was, we knew that pretty early on that we wanted to have this story be focused about what happened at we on April 15, 2018. But through that, there are so many other issues, uh, which that story highlighted. But we, I don't, I don't know the exact total of letters that we got returned, but, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of letters. And as you say, you know, some were very specific about specific details, but but many others were just uh, about much larger issues. And I think it was just in conversations um, was just realizing that there was a lot, there was a good opportunity for us to highlight some of these details in a way that probably wasn't going to make it in the story, but was still important to have people's voices heard. As Jen said, people feel like their voices aren't heard. And so this was a way to give them an opportunity to do that, even if they weren't sharing something uh, specific about about the riot. You know, one thing that I wanted to mention, too, along those lines, Stephen, is that the, the letters, so many of them talked about that hopelessness that they felt. Mm. And it was just this running theme. And Stephen and I were talking about it. Um, and how could we, we weren't going to be able to use sort of this general sense of, of hopelessness in a narrative about what happened in the prison that day. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we could use it and, and communicate with people that overarching uh, message that we were hearing. And, and 
the video was a way to make use of some of that in a way that just we knew wouldn't make it into the story. Um, but it really was amazing. Uh, almost every letter, it, uh, Stephen, unless I'm forgetting any, almost every letter talked about hopelessness, hopelessness, mm-hmm. hopelessness. Um, so that you really, after you read that for, you know, seven, eight months, day after day, you realize um, uh, that's just such an important piece of this story. And Andy Whitaker, our photographer, um, video guru who put that together, um, did an amazing job, as he always does. But he did an amazing job, I think, communicating um, that message in that video. I hope I hope you hope listeners out there will check it out. So one one thing I liked about the story is the way that you actually wrote it. Um, it really takes the reader like through the sequence of events as if they're there. Um, how did you decide that that was the format you wanted to to use to tell the story? I think this was a decision we made early on talking with Jen about this was just because I think we knew so little about what happened. And I think to really feel what happened, the most effective way to do that is to actually get a reader there and to really care about this issue because we know that there's a lot of people maybe who don't immediately care about people who are in prison or they're not as interested as the people who are in prison as a population of, say, others who are outside. And so to make sure that a reader, whatever their preconceived notions about someone maybe who is in prison, and and there are some people who are in there for doing very awful things, but what was important was this was an awful thing that happened that night. And as Jen said, these are human beings that this happened to. And so I think being able as a reporter and writer to get people to feel that, not only understand that this was a large issue, but also understand in their heart or their gut that something really awful happened and really feel that viscerally, I think was why we decided to tell that story that way. Because it's so important, again, to get the reader to really, I think, care about the people or at least feel a sense of empathy for the people who are going through this awful thing. Did you run into any like challenges with that format? Does it make telling certain aspects of the story harder? It does because you don't have attribution in that format of the story. So there was a lot that we heard that we didn't use because we weren't able to verify it to the level that we wanted in order to use it in a narrative like this where you're stating things as fact. It would have been different if we could have said, you know, X and such happened according to so-and-so, because then you're you're putting it on so-and-so. But without that kind of format, you have to be absolutely certain with your facts. You can't just sort of attribute it to somebody, and if it's not accurate, well, it falls onto them. In a narrative format, you have to be able to state things as facts so that you can paint a picture without pausing to include attribution. And then at the end of the story, we included a box that talked about how we did it. It definitely makes it extremely readable, right? It's a long piece, but you just kind of fly through it because you do feel like you're there, but it's definitely a challenging way to do it. And and you guys definitely really got got into the the detail. One thing when I was going back through it a couple of times, I noted that at the beginning, um, some inmates are playing cards and 
there's a Utah Jazz versus Oklahoma City Thunder game on, and you guys note that it was game one, a tight one. So I'm guessing you obviously looked up the game and looked up the score and checked that. So just one of those details that I think uh, you might just read right past, but it takes a good amount of fact-checking and work, right, to to add in details like that. I think that reporting is actually harder than than actual traditional reporting um, to me for those reasons that the reader, you want the reader to fly through that information and just feel like they're there, not pause at it. But it does, that all takes time. It just does. It takes time and resources. What was a typical day like when you were in the thick of reporting this? Obviously, there are different phases. And when you're in those last days of, of editing and writing and fact checking, that's a little more intense. But uh, can you just kind of describe what a day was like working on this? Well, we we got to start for, for much of the project. We started our day reviewing and, and reading letters. And it got to the point, Jen and I were usually there you know, early in the morning around the time that the uh, mail would be delivered into the newsroom. And so I know for me uh, and for both of us, we got excited kind of listening to the the rattling of the cart that the um, person uh, who runs our mail room uses to bring the mail. So every time I would hear the way the door would be open and the rattling of the cart, I would know that there would be letters on the way. And so uh, always for us to check. And, and, and Jen and I um, would sometimes both, sometimes whoever was there, go over and see if there were any letters uh, for us. So that was always, it seems like a, a pretty consistent start to the day. Uh, and, and, and after that, you know, based on what we got, either it would be something that was very relevant to uh, what we were trying to do and we might immediately write them back or maybe there was something that we would immediately follow up on. And one of the things that's so crucial in a story like this is uh, organization. And so early on, uh, you know, Jen, which is one of her early ideas, which worked out really well, was just to build a timeline of information based on what we collected from lawsuits, other documents, from these letters, and just try to piece together based on all uh, the information that we have, kind of what we know or how we know it. And so a lot of times it would just be building that timeline in so many ways because we felt like telling the story in a chronology was the way to tell it. And I think we shrunk down to the time that we wanted to tell it. We had a longer timeline, but then as we got closer and the, the weeks and months went on, we realized that we wanted to just kind of tell the story of that night with some other details mixed in. But so a lot of the day really was, it, it almost to kind of a simple terms, building out that timeline. So if it wasn't letters or documents, it would be trying to follow up with other sources and trying to see, are there holes in here that we immediately see that we can try to fill in? And that's a really difficult all day affair for people who aren't journalists. Um, you know, sometimes I think it's, it's always important 
with a story like this is you get all this information, you get excited about it, but then it's like in a Microsoft Word document or whatever. And if it just sits there, it maybe doesn't do you any good if you have 50 separate documents. And then if, you know, six months later, we're trying to write a story and then we're tracking all that information and it just takes us too much time. And so I think our ability at the end to tell the story in the way that we did was because we spent the minutes, the hours, the, the time, like going back and really building that timeline in that way. So a lot of it was just how can we be as organized we can as we can through the day. Uh, so and and one other thing too, which I don't think um, Jen even knows this too, was some days I would actually even come in on the weekends and send letters because there was so much effort to try to get letters out because I just, we just wanted to try to get as many people as we could. So sometimes I would come in at work and would get letters addressed and so they could go out first. So, so sometimes on a Saturday, because I knew that our mail would be picked up Monday through Friday, I would get a series of letters ready so that our mail person could pick them up first thing on Monday. And then I would get a series of letters ready that I would drop off at the local post office so that they could go out on Saturday. So it was just a way to get out and maximize as many letters as we could to get out. But it was just, um, you know, it's worth it when you're working on a story like this because we just wanted to be able to tell the story. And, and so that was something that was a really fun aspect of the process. It, uh, I'd add it also involved a lot of phone calls. Um, we would field yeah. phone calls at all hours of the day and night because, you know, someone who's in a prison and has an illicit cell phone can't call at their leisure uh, or even who's using the official prison system, uh, they can, you know, their lives are not such that they can call whenever it suits you during the nine to five day. So we would field a lot of phone calls uh, all the time. What What's changed since we, or since y'all published the story? Well, so a number of things. Um, some of what's changed was stuff that had begun before. For instance, Lee has made a lot of changes at the prison system, especially or at the prison yard, especially on the East Yard, which is not where the riot occurred, but the other yard. Um, they've added a, a number of character dorm type programs. Um, they have the Academy of Hope, which is for a gang and other leaders um, to try and, and move them into more positive leadership roles in the yard. Um, they come from prisons across South Carolina. They have the Vera Institute, uh, which is for youthful offenders. They now they have a, what's called a Blick unit, which is uh, another character-based dorm. So they've made uh, a number of changes to allow inmates ways to gain privileges um, based on their behavior. Uh, in particular, um, they've uh, Brian Sterling, who's the director of SCDC, has asked for a sub substantially substantially more money to upgrade prison security and um, pay staff more and, and a lot of other critical needs. Now, when the story ran in December, it was right before the legislature came back in January. And uh, Governor McMaster uh, said in his State of the State speech that, you know, we know about these problems and now we need to do something. Uh, the legislature appeared poised to add um, substantial money to SCDC's budget. And then, of course, the coronavirus hit and now everything is at the standstill. Uh, and to make matters worse, the staff shortage that uh, contributed to the riot is only exacerbated by the virus because you can imagine that if you are uh, an employee who works directly with inmates, you're working in a large communal living environment um, in, in 
there's concerns about that. Uh, staff have come down with the virus. I think this morning I checked and there were seven staff members at Broad River Correctional alone who were out after having tested positive. So the virus is putting um, a lot of strain on the staff. Luckily, um, according to SCDC, no inmates have been infected at this point, or at least tests have not come back positive for them. Um, but that all puts a stress on the situation that was already stressful. Uh, and some of the changes that they'd hoped for through the budget process are now, um, you know, who knows how that will all turn out. So um, unfortunately, some of the positive momentum um, has been halted. So we'll see when the legislature is able to deal with the budget. But as of now, um, uh, as I mentioned, the virus is is only exacerbating the staff shortage problem. One thing I would mention also with Lee is that they added a, a whole variety of, of security measures. Um, they added these um, really high um, um, nets to keep people from throwing contraband over the prison fences. Uh, they added uh, all kinds of new scanning devices and drone technology, drone detecting technology to watch for contraband drops. Um, so they've made a lot of positive changes at the prison uh, and assaults were way, way down. They haven't had a killing there since the riot. Um, but, you know, the, the gangs remain an issue and violence remains an issue. Um, we just ran a story this weekend about the second anniversary, which has passed. Um, or I'm sorry, it's coming up tomorrow. And uh, right before that, a staff member had been stabbed in a dorm and seriously injured. So um, uh, challenges remain, but SCDC has made some positive changes at Lee. And I would just add on that too, a lot of the people who were there or were say injured or, or may have witnessed something are also not at Lee anymore too. So even the population of, of inmates has kind of dispersed out through the prison system, which kind of goes back to something that happened earlier uh, that, that Jen mentioned earlier was, you know, people don't necessarily forget what happened because uh, this was such a major event. So now that the population has been dispersed, I think there's a concern if people get back together or if some of these rivalries again that if people are back at the same yard that there could be additional violence so I think that that's a, that's something that they're still continuing to keep an eye on as well not just that we but other institutions across the state yeah I was just going to ask if if both of you could e explain that a little bit right we haven't seen criminal charges there are still right lawsuits that are stalled uh, what is what is that state for things right now? So yeah, it's been it's been two years since what happened, and there still haven't been criminal charges uh, that have been filed. And and I know for some of the inmates, there's a real question of whether or not the inmates who are actually under investigation. There's a real question about whether or not they will be charged, and there's a frustration there. There's a frustration with some of the attorneys who have filed lawsuits. Uh, there have been about three dozen lawsuits for on behalf of. Uh, men who were injured or, or families of those who were killed. I think there's a frustration that it seems like this process has moved slowly, that two years later, there still are a lot of documents they haven't received. There's still no charges. And I think people feel a sense of concern about whether or not something actually will happen in this case. Uh, now, the Department of Corrections, is they have a couple of special prosecutors who are looking into it who have been reviewing the investigation 
that uh, state and uh, police law enforcement did. Uh, and so they've been looking at it for a year and they say that's still an ongoing investigation and, and they're you know, still pushing forward to bring charges in this case. I would just, I would just add that a couple, you know, with a couple years having passed, a number of the inmates who have been under investigations uh, were frustrated because they're kept in restrictive housing, um, as are some who were wounded in the violence or witnesses to the violence. And it's frustrating for them because they um, have, they are stuck in a cell by themselves. They very rarely get to go outside. Uh, I think um, for those who are not going to be charged, uh, it's especially frustrating because many of them told us that nobody has come to interview them about what happened. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier about just being heard. Uh, I think at this point, two years out, there's um, just a sense of, of, does anybody care? Are we ever going to move forward after this? I think that's um, probably a, a good place to, to leave it um, today. I want to thank uh, Stephen and Jen for, for coming on the show and, and explaining all of this to us. And uh, congratulate them once again on the recent wins for, for this project. Well-deserved. Um, if you have questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast, you can find us on Twitter. We're at understandsc, all one word. Stephen and Jennifer, how can readers get in touch with you? Well, I encourage any reader to reach out to me anytime over email. It's uh, my name, Jay Hawes, H-A-W-E-S, at postandcourier.com. Or to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Jen, J-E-N, Jen Barry Hawes. Uh, I try to respond to all rational, um, non-trolling Twitter messages. uh, And I really do like to hear from readers. Yeah, and the best way to get me is probably on email. It's shobbs at postincourier.com. That's H-O-B-B-S. You can also follow me on Twitter or message me on Twitter at by Stephen Hobbs, but I'm not on there all the time. So email is probably the best way to get me. Well, thank you both so much uh, for for talking with us today. Uh, I think it's been really interesting to hear more about the process that got to this story. Well, thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.